Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to a special edition of The Soul of the Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. You can find Soul of the Nation on iTunes, Google Play, and on Sojo.net. For more news, resources, and reflections on the nation's moral and health crisis, visit Sojo.net. Today, I'm speaking with Michelle Reyes about her new book, Becoming All Things. Michelle Amy Reyes, Ph.D., is a vice president of the Asian American Christian Collaborative and co-executive director of Pox, a media organization promoting the peace of Jesus. How about that? The peace of Jesus. We're going to hear more about that. She's also a scholar in residence at Hope Community Church and author of this wonderful book that I want you to hear about, know about, called Becoming All Things, How Small Changes Lead to Lasting Connections Across Cultures. Michelle lives in Austin, Texas with her husband, Aaron, and I'm told two amazing kids. So (laughs) thank you for joining us today, Michelle. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Michelle, how is your spirit these days? That's a great question. I think you're the first person to ever ask me this question, but I, I love it. Um, and I'll say, at the moment, uh, I, I'm, I'm feeling very rested. My spirit feels at peace. Uh, it's been a busy past month. Uh, just celebrated the one-month birthday of my book releasing, Becoming All Things, and um now taking some time off and just catching up on rest, doing some soul care and body care. Uh, as you know, Jim, it, it, it's not for the faint of heart to release a book into the world. And so I'm feeling some of that, or I was feeling some of that exhaustion, um, that joy and that exhaustion all mixed together. And so just been very grateful for the rest this month. Um, extra time with family, <laughs> extra time with my two amazing children. Uh Wanted to give a little shout out and love to my kids. So um, doing well. What are the names and how old are they? The names of your kids? So my oldest is Akash. He's six and Ava is two. Okay. Well, I remember those years. So good for you. <laughs> um, putting on a book at the same time as having kids yeah. that age is a, well, good for you. <laughs> um, <laughs> Thanks. Uh, let's us take Michelle's pastoral counsel here. Uh, No matter how much we care about all the issues that we're going to be raising today, tough ones, challenging ones, life-changing ones, we all need to take care of ourselves and each other and certainly our families and kids. So holding us accountable to take care of each other is a good word. So we'll take that right from Michelle from the start. So why did you write Becoming All Things and what is the clearest message you would like to get across, especially to Christians, and I'm going to say perhaps especially to white Christians. Yeah. Well, as as you mentioned, Jim, I'm a church planter. Uh, my husband and I, we planted a minority-led multicultural church. I also serve as scholar-in-residence at my church, which is a fancy way of saying that my speaking and writing uh, highlights our church, but it is also, also serves as a resource for the church. And uh that reflects my heart. My heart is for the church um, and for the church to live out the biblical vision 
of multiculturalism that we see throughout scripture, uh, but especially in Revelation 7 verse 9, in which we we see a a picture of a multi-ethnic, multicultural body of Christ worshiping God for all eternity. And not, not only is that a beautiful image, but it's a powerful statement because if that is the vision of the future, and if we truly believe what we pray in the Lord's Prayer, uh, you know, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, then pursuing this vision of a diverse, multi-ethnic body of Christ has to be something that we are actively leaning into today. And so more than that, the clearest message I want Christians to understand, and, and, and as you mentioned, white Christians in particular, is that there is a fuller blessing to be received when we value and embrace people of different cultures. This is what Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27 testifies, that every person is made in the image of God. And when we we value the cultural identity of another person, we begin to see a greater picture of who God is. So hearing from, learning from, even being led by other people and cultures is a blessing that can only strengthen our faith and deepen our love for God. I want to call those two texts that you just raised wonderfully. Genesis 1, 26, first book in the Bible, first chapter, and Revelation 7 as the biblical arc about race in America. It's the biblical arc about the world, where it starts by saying, God, I love, and all the noise around us, I love the way that text begins. Then God said, <laughs> interrupting all of our noise, then God said, let us make them in our own image and after our own likeness. So every one of us, no exceptions, every human being was made in the image and likeness of God. And that's where we start as the people of God. Then all through the scriptures, this comes up again and again and again, which we get to in a few moments in your book. But it ends, here's the way it's supposed to end. We're all together, countless numbers of us worshiping God. And it says, in our own tribes, languages, tongues, in all of who we are, in all of the different ways we are, who we are, all in the image of God made in our great diversity. There's no homogeneous community there at the end. We all look and sound and act the same. And no, we're, the text is about how the wonderful diversity of God's people is there at the end, worshiping God in, not in spite of, but in, all of our diversity. So you just explained the biblical arc here of of the Bible (laughs) in terms of race. In the introduction to your book, you lift up the Apostle Paul as an example of a cross-cultural engagement of doing that. I love this quote from your, your book. For Paul, to be a follower of Jesus meant that he lived a life of constant cultural adaptation use that word, cultural adaptation, and his willingness to embrace change made him particularly well-suited to form cross-cultural relationships. Paul embraced his cultural identity, you say, yet he knew how to step outside of it because he saw his ability to be adaptable as a strength. That's a very excellent quote. Share more about this balancing act of embracing your cultural identity while being adaptable. Yeah. Well, I would argue that cultural celebration and cultural adaptation are two sides of the same coin. And here's what I mean by that. On the one hand, 
We are called to, to, to lean into and develop our cultural identities, to understand who we are as cultural image bearers, and, and the way that our own cultural identity reflects God's image in the world. People of color shouldn't be ashamed or feel like they must hide who they are in order to fit in. Uh, the, we should be able to bring our full bodies uh, to the table and 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 delight in the the color of skin that God made us, uh, and 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 so on. And on the other hand, at the exact same time, cultural adaptation adaptability is the call for Christians, for all Christians in the church age. As the as the people of God, we no longer live under the old Mosaic covenant in the Old Testament, which required everyone to come to the people of God and to conform to one standard of living and being. Rather, we now live uh, under the new covenant and, and in the wake of the Great Commission, which commands us to go out, <laughs> to go to other people, to find them where they are and to connect with them in ways that make sense to their social and cultural location for the sake of the gospel. So as Christians, we must become excellent listeners and observers, noting, you know, noticing the ways in which people talk and act, what they value, how they view the world. That's really what culture is all about. Different cultures is about different ways of viewing the world, different values, different understandings of what it means to be a good person and, and embody, uh, have an embodied experience in the world. And so if we can be uh, good listeners and learners, uh, we can then respond in ways that we adapt our, our speech and our body language to connect with different peoples in order to show the love of Christ. And I think about, you know, throughout Paul's life, he shaved his head to connect with certain peoples. He commanded some folks to be circumcised and others not to be. He he knew how to debate with the religious leaders in the synagogue and philosophize with the Greeks in the public square. He got people and he knew where to find people and how to talk with them. And he went to them. So a, a practical example is, is my, even for my husband and I, as, as church planters, when we moved from Chicago to Austin, which is home for my husband, you know, we slowly began to change our clothes, our, 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 the way we talked, uh, and, and more importantly, the way we lived our life and what stores we shopped at, how we viewed the world. We began thinking and living more like the folks in East Austin that we wanted to reach for the gospel. And, and we do this even now, but we do it while still being proud of who we are for myself as an Indian American, for my husband as a, as a Mexican American. So it's, it's a balancing act, as you say. Well, you're, uh, I hope people heard what you said about cultural celebration and cultural adaptation are two sides of the same coin. So given that, what, how does what people call cultural adaptation apply in a time like ours of cultural and actual racial clash? That's so good. Well, I think oftentimes we have a knee-jerk reaction <laughs> to other people's stories and and their stories of how they're experiencing the world, uh, because if it's not our reality, if we haven't experienced it, then too often than not, we we think, well, that must not be true, or that must be so isolated of an incident that it's not really worthy of any sort of attention. Uh, and I've had so many well-meaning brothers, you know, white brothers and sisters, you know, come up to me, talk to me after I've shared an experience of racism, um, some sort of experience in which I had a door shut uh, because of the color of my skin, uh, you know, fill in the blank. And, and they, you know, they're like, why, why do you have to make this about about race? Why do you have to make this about, uh, you know, 
why, why do you think that racism was involved? Uh, why are you playing that culture card all the time? And it's because they've never experienced those uh, those issues. They've, they've never been marginalized or, or, or um, judged because of the color of their skin. And I, I remember distinctly one white brother uh, who used to be in our church who came up to me after church one day. He goes, I finally get it. I finally get it. And I, I've come to apologize to you because every time I heard you share a story about something you'd gone through, I was interpreting it through my lens as a white man. And I just thought you were crazy. <laughs> and then I started to try to see the world through your eyes. And the minute I, the minute I began trying to think, like, what would it be like to be a, an Indian American woman? What, how would I be treated differently? How might people see me differently? Everything changed. And he goes, I just, I, I didn't know what I didn't know. And I'm so sorry. And so when it comes to cultural and racial clashes, we have to get out of our own head. Uh, and, and even I think this applies between different uh, communities of color and minorities, because each of us experience racism differently. If you were to ask me, you know, Michelle, what is your vision of justice for the Asian American community? It would probably, my answer would probably be different than if you asked a black man or woman what they feel like is, would be justice for the black community right now. And so we, we need to be able to hear each other's stories, uh, be able to understand how, how we view the world, how we experience the world. Um, and really when it comes to racial clashes, instead of responding in the way we think we should respond and based off of our own experiences, we need to be better listeners and respond in the way that those directly impacted by that racism are asking us to respond. So let's uh, double down on those you call generously uh, my white brothers and sisters. Uh, you go on to share numerous biblical examples of cross-cultural connection and ultimately declare this, that at the heart of the Christian life is a commitment to the messy web of cross-cultural relationships that seeks the flourishing of all people, whether that be within our own families, our neighborhoods, our churches, or our society as a whole. So how do we do that? How do we live more fully into this commitment when some of the loudest, loudest Christian voices are actively seeking to maintain dominant white culture? Yeah, I want to say a word about that dominant white culture. Uh, I really appreciate the work of Dr. Corey Edwards. Uh, she actually had an article come out recently with Christianity Today in which she talked about the failed experiment of the multicultural church, and I think by extension, the failed experiment of the multicultural body of Christ. And her argument has to do with the fact that so often diversity is only permitted to the extent that white people are comfortable and to the extent that white culture remains at the center. Um, and going back to that quote that you just shared, plain and simple, people are messy and living within a messy web of cross-cultural relationships will be difficult because it makes us uncomfortable. And I think about how some Christians pray at the same time. That's, that's a very Asian cultural expression where multiple folks are all praying at once. And I've seen how certain white Christians have become uncomfortable by that, quote, lack of organized prayer. Uh, I think about when we're invited to someone's home and the food is so different from our normal palate. We just can't even imagine eating the food in front of us. 
or even just the fact that hearing other folks talk about race and injustice or, or, or systems uh, can make us feel so uncomfortable. So the question we need to be asking ourselves is how much discomfort am I willing to forbear? How can I challenge myself to lean in and to listen and empathize and care again and again for the sake of the gospel? This is about learning to give up control and being okay with the messy. And I think so often as as, as Western individuals and as the Western church, that sort of uh, chaos and discomfort is something we're constantly rejecting. But to truly be able to move past a dominant white culture and embrace a biblical understanding of multiculturalism is going to require just that. And white Christians tend to think when they're uh, feeling discomfort, they're in danger. Mm. And they're usually not. They just feel <laughs> discomfort, but they're in no danger. That's right. And people of color feel discomfort. They're often in danger. You just shared a white brother story. I'll share one back to you. So I'm having lunch with this uh, white Christian. Uh, he would call himself liberal progressive, I think. Uh, and he was trying to talk to me about whether he wanted to, you know, donate to sojourners. <laughs> so I'm supposed to be very encouraging of all of that. And because uh, I'm in charge of raising all this money for the organization that I was leading at the time. So he said, now all this talk about police brutality. Now, Clearly, there are problems. I mean, clearly, there are things going on that shouldn't be going on, uh, particularly from white police to people in young men and women of color. But isn't it kind of sometimes exaggerated? Isn't it kind of just uh, rhetoric and, and politicized? Um, you know, and I said, um, I paused for a moment. I looked at him and said, uh, you don't have any black friends, do you? He said, what do you mean? I don't need black friends. Of course I do. And he named off a few, a few people. And, and there's that so-and-so, what's his name with the water cooler at work? And I said, no, you don't have any black friends because if you had black friends who thought they were your friends, they would tell you about how fearful they are about their black kids going out of the house every day in the morning in this country, no matter what part of the country they live in. Uh, they would tell you that if they were your friends. Uh, and that was the beginning of our conversation. Uh, and uh, he was just uncomfortable because he, because he really wasn't, 70% of, of white people in this country have no, no uh, relationship, primary relationship with a person or family of color in their immediate social circle. None. Even in the so-called body of Christ. Uh, so when Corinthians says that uh, when one part of the body suffers, we all should suffer, the black body of Christ suffers what every, uh, every black parent knows. They've had to talk with their kid about how to, particularly young men, but young women too, how to behave in the presence of a white police officer, what to do, not to do, how to hold your hands, your eye contact, your hands on the steering wheel, what to say and not to say. I don't know any white liberal progressive parents who have that conversation with their kids, but every black parent does. And so when the black body of Christ is suffering like this, and this happens to, uh, to brown members of the body of Christ, and more and more we see it with Asian Americans as well, how parents are fearful for their kids walking around or at a shopping mall or going for a drive or jogging or whatever. 
And when the white Christians, body of Christ, don't even acknowledge the suffering, let alone understand it and act in solidarity with it, they said, isn't this kind of exaggerated? So are there times, for example, when we have to respond to clear racialized policing, for example, and we need to take sides? Yeah, that's great. Uh, that's a that's a great question. Um, I'll, I'll say simply, I think too often we as Christians, we get sucked into the dichotomy of being Republican or, or, or Democrat, and we care more about taking sides with the political party rather than taking the side of Christ. And Jesus over and again offers a third way for us that requires standing against the status quo of, of choosing peace instead of hate, standing up for those on the margins instead of taking up the center, and advancing the kingdom of God in a way that is good news to the poor. And so uh, whenever we're confronted with a new cultural issue or a racial tragedy or fill in the blank, our priority as followers of Christ has to be to stand on the side of Jesus and what would be good news to the poor and the hurting. And sometimes that might mean landing in one political camp or another, and other times it'll mean not fitting into either political category. Uh, but, you know, 1 Corinthians 12 verses 24 through 26 talks about the body of Christ and, and uh, God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it so that there could be no division, uh, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. And if one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. And so as Christians, we have to treat the voices and the people on the margins with an overabundance of concern <laughs> and honor. And as you mentioned, that relates to not only African-Americans, but Asian-Americans right now. And so uh, when it comes to issues like racialized policing, that has to be the lens in which we view these issues and to respond uh, on the side of Christ and on the side of, of, of those who are suffering. So with racialized policing, for example, uh, to take the side of Christ is to take the side of the one who's being uh, subject to hate, fear, and violence. Um, uh, and you, you got into this a few moments ago. Let's say more about this. In a chapter on stereotypes, you advise us that we ask ourselves, here's what you say. What stereotypes have I constructed about other cultural groups who I am avoiding as a result? How might my perception of someone from a different culture be lacking? What parts of their personhood have I filtered out? What racial biases do I have? And how can I work to deconstruct them? So you just mentioned this greater revelation, finally, of all the uh, anti-Asian violence in this country uh, that has been, been brought out in such a powerful, frightening, and and in uh, a painful way. You point to the internal work that we all need to do continually to break down stereotypes. Uh, say more about that important work. And has the increasingly visible violence against Asian Americans perhaps created even more solidarity between Asian Americans and African Americans? Those are, those are great layered questions, uh, Jim. And so I'll, I'll say this first. We need to see each person as a unique individual. 
neither Asians nor African Americans are a monolith. I mean, there's around 20 to 22 million Asians in this country from over 48 countries in Asia with different languages, experiences, religions. Some of us are rich, some are poor. And that's something that many people don't realize is that Asian Americans hold the greatest income disparity of any minority group in the U.S., which means we are some of the wealthiest and some of the poorest minorities in this country. And yet, nevertheless, we're plagued by both the perpetual foreigner syndrome and the model minority myth. And even during COVID-19, we've seen the way that we've gone from perceived foreigner to foreign threat. Uh, And I just want to highlight a series that we've done at the Asian American Christian Collaborative called Interconnected. We did it in partnership with Latasha Morrison and Be the Bridge. And we produced a three-part video series that unpacks the long history of racial prejudice uh, between African-American and Asian-American communities. And I think that one of the big elephants in the room of this last year in particular is that many of the attacks against Asians have been committed by Black men. And at the same time, one of the officers involved in the death of George Floyd was Asian-American. So it cuts both ways from, from the L.A. riots in the early 90s to parents telling their kids not to marry the other. Uh, we've, we have a lot of racial, racial prejudice and a long history to come to terms with. And for us as Christians, as, as Asian-American and African-American Christians, we need to call a spade a spade <laughs> because short and simple racial prejudice of any kind is a sin. It's wrong. And we're called as Christians to uh, not construct systems of, of, of value that label one people group as better than another. So African-Americans and Asian-Americans, we need to call that out. But more than that, we need to make space for each other's grief and to not compare our sufferings. Uh, you know, I think about even the fact my mom's own story, uh, you know, her great, great grandparents were brought as forced laborers from India to Uganda, Africa to build the railroad. And not only that, but in the 60s, they had to flee as refugees with literally nothing but the clothes on their back under the dictatorship of President Idi Amin, who was waging a genocide uh, against Indians and other minorities. And over 500,000 people were killed during that time. Uh, And so as as different minority groups, we have different experiences of suffering we have different experiences of slavery. Uh, some of us have fled genocide. Uh, you know, some of us are fleeing from from uh, socialist dictatorships, uh, and, and and so we cannot compete in a silo of Olympic oppression to say, okay, my suffering demands greater weight and greater centering than your suffering. And then finally, we need to show up for each other. It does no good to only ask for help when our own house is burning, but to never care about anyone else's burning house. We have to um, show that we care just as much about the oppression that impacts other people groups as our own, because that's what's going to be required um, to truly uh, pursue healing and reconciliation and true solidarity moving forward. I hope that folks are listening to those really good points. I remember the first time I went to speak at an Asian American conference Christian County years ago, uh, I learned about the sort of hierarchy of Asian American people in this country, Japanese, Chinese, uh, Korean, all the way down to Filipinos and Pacific Islanders and the income range and the, and the conflict between communities and history, all of that. And the stereotype that uh, all blacks or all Hispanics 
on all Asian Americans are the same when there's when there's great distinctions in within our own communities uh, that are always there and uh, and making that point is so important for all of us and how we increase our solidarity with each other with, without comparing our uh, for example you I want to say a little more about two things you said one is Asian Americans are often referred to as foreigners uh, outsiders who don't belong and the other thing you mentioned is the minority the model minority say say more about that for folks who might not know what that means those two yeah. So the perpetual foreigner syndrome is this idea that no matter how long we've been here, no, many, no matter how many generations uh, of Asian Americans are in our family that have, have been born and raised in the United States, we're still seen as uh, not belonging to this country. And it's that idea that leads to questions like, where are you from? No, where are you really from? Uh, even sometimes when I tell people, you know, I'm from Minnesota, <laughs> there's a follow-up question of like, but but weren't you born in India? <laughs> where are you really uh, from? <laughs> exactly. And, and even questions like, how do you speak English so well? Or, uh, you know, I'm, 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 so, I'm so surprised by the way you look or the way you, you dress because you don't seem that Asian to me <laughs> as if that's a compliment. Uh, and so... Uh, I, I, and yeah, it's this, it's this idea that Asians aren't from here, that they don't belong here. Uh, and, and, and while we are sometimes accepted as like an, a friendly neighbor or maybe that preferred classmate or something like that, we're, we're, not, we're not somebody that, that is often seen as, as somebody they want to be led by, taught by, um, as, as, as somebody who who we are okay with having power over us. Uh, and that's all part of that perpetual foreigner syndrome. And the other side of that coin is the model minority myth. And it's a false myth because the idea is, behind it is that Asians are somehow racially smarter or racially more successful than other minority groups, uh, as if there's some oriental magic formula <laughs> to to why there are some Asians that are, are, are middle class and rich and, and, and fill in the blank. And yet um, this myth was created in the 1960s by a white journalist. And you have to understand the historical context. This is in the middle of the civil rights movement. And it was used to pit Asian Americans against African Americans to, to really uh, put a wrench in the civil rights efforts. And this, the saying goes, if, if Asians can be successful, then why can't black people? If Asians can be successful, then why not Latinos? And so we are, as Asians, we're used as a wedge to keep white people safe and to put African-Americans and Latinos down. And that's the problem behind the model minority myth. And, and even worse, uh, because people think, oh, you know, most Asians are, are wealthy and comfortable and don't experience racism in this past year during COVID-19, we've been called snowflakes. Our, our, our stories about um, experiencing racial prejudice, experiencing racism have been dismissed saying, you've had it great in this country. So whatever you're talking about must just be an isolated incident and, and, and really isn't worthy of, of greater mainstream attention. And I think the revelation of uh, revealing and exposing of so much violence against Asian Americans, particularly during the COVID time when the the pandemic was used against Asian American people uh, has really increased the, the the sense of solidarity across 
lines. I remember a conversation one morning with a, a top evangelical leader who's also Asian American. And just that morning on the street, the park in front of his house, he was, he was verbally abused uh, because of being Asian American and called Chinese when he wasn't even Chinese, all because of the COVID pandemic. And so it's some, in all this pain, there seems to be a growing sense of what you're calling for, a solidarity with each other, which I think it could be a very powerful thing. I resonate deeply with this line from your book. You're right. Being followers of Jesus means, at the very least, being willing to embrace discomfort in order to serve others. To embrace discomfort in order to serve others. Say more about you. what you mean by, by this. How do discomfort and serving others go hand in hand? Yeah, absolutely. You know, loving our neighbor should be costly. And scripture calls us to put each other's interests above our own. I even think about Mark 10, 45, that says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And, you know, can we can we say that we're truly loving our neighbor if it never makes us feel uncomfortable or if it never costs us anything? And I'm not saying we intentionally put our life at risk, but it is important to remember that Jesus did shield us from the full weight of sin and death with his body on the cross. And this is our model. How do we use our own bodies, our resources, our lives as a shield to care and protect the vulnerable? And I think practically this means a few things. First, we need to be trained as, as protective bystanders. I, I still hate the video of an Asian woman in New York who's being kicked over and over again in the head by a black man and no one comes to her aid. In fact, we see a security guard who's watching this unfold and he shuts the door. And the question I think we need to be asking ourselves in those sorts of situations is how can we not walk but run towards those in physical danger? And second, we must be willing to speak up. When we hear others being put down verbally, condescended, uh, gaslit even, how can we show allyship by speaking up with and alongside the oppressed? How can we let the accuser know that their words are not okay and that we will not stand by silently? And I think these are two examples of how loving our neighbor will require risk uh, because it may come at a great cost to our own reputation, our relationships, maybe even our own physical well-being. But this, this is what Jesus calls us to. Well, that very video uh, had come to mind uh, before you raised it up. And I wanted want to point to that. Here's this elderly Asian woman little tiny elderly woman just walking on the street in New York. And all of a sudden a very large man is, is kicking and again and again, coming back and the, the, the merchant uh, closing the door uh, struck me as such a deeply painful thing. So when you stand with people who are being oppressed or even attacked against their oppressors and attackers, discomfort can even turn to risk-taking, right? Amen. Amen. And I think that is that is exactly what true love for our neighbor uh, must include. I think about, uh, you know, these are, these are examples throughout the Gospels. I think of Zacchaeus who 
to show his his willingness and commitment to follow Jesus gives up of his his money, right? There's this financial cost and the pursuit of reparations uh, to care for for those around him. I think of Jesus' story of the the parable of the Samaritan man who is willing at great cost to his own livelihood, his own physical safety, uh, to to care for this 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 beat up man on the road because to stop and care for this beat up man means he might also <laughs> be attacked, uh, and and he is willing to suffer that cost, give up of not only his time but his physical resources to care for somebody who has been uh, attacked, and 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 I can't think of a better example than even Jesus himself who who is willing, that is a risk he is willing to take uh, for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of, of, of loving our neighbor fully. So we're called to serve, and we like to think we are people who are serving people, but service can lead to discomfort, and discomfort can lead to risk-taking. <laughs> if we follow Jesus where we might be, be led. Thank you for raising up uh, the Asian American Christian Collaborative, which you're a vice president for. Uh, this is a network organization, growing movement in the country uh, that is that has become more visible during this critical time of such uh, increasing violence of young Asian American Christians who are really showing a lot of leadership. Could you share more about what you're up to at the Collaborative? And how listeners can get involved and connect to your work? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so we have our, our our main bread and butter, if you will, is the AACC Reclaim publication, and in, in which we uh, we have a, a twice a week publication on issues of, of faith, culture, justice from a biblical perspective, uh, as well as the AACC Reclaim podcast that Raymond Chang and I co-host and we've put out two seasons thus far of the podcast the first season was on reclaiming justice uh how, how do we as asian americans but also friends of the community uh follow christ holistically by reclaiming justice in the different fields and areas of life in which we inhabit and the second season which released the spring was on reclaiming our cultural identities and for anybody uh, asian or not who's wanting to learn how to develop lean into, celebrate their cultural identities. Um, that's, a, that's a wonderful series. Uh, we had a fantastic lineup of guests um, who, who helped us unpack that. Uh, we're in the midst of planning a, a conference, so, so stay tuned and you can, you can follow us and what we're doing on our website at uh, the Asian American Christian Collaborative.com and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at AA Christ Collab. Well, this book and your leadership of the AACC lifts up, lifts up, I'm sorry, this book and your leadership of the AAC, oh, one more time, this book and your leadership of the AACC lifts up the voice of a woman and an Asian American woman. You talk about our different identities. So how does yours as an Asian American woman shape what you most want to say? Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. Um, well, I'll say this. I'm grateful for all of the positive feedback that I've received uh, with my book coming out into the world. Uh, but a, a recurring comment that I've heard from, from many different people uh, is that my book is the first book they've ever read by an Asian American woman. And perhaps I shouldn't be surprised by that, but it's, it's such a revealing uh, reality. And 
in conjunction with that, the uh, the group launch, they put out a survey that was highlighted um, on uh, NBC in which they asked a, a wide breadth of Americans to name a prominent Asian American. Do, do you know a well-known Asian American? And 42% of those uh, who participated in the survey said they didn't know one, which is astounding because we have a vice president who is half Asian. <laughs> so, uh, and, you know, the second two answers after I don't know was uh, Jackie Chan, that was 11%, and then Bruce Lee, 9%, who died half a century ago. <laughs> so, um, I think what it's revealing, and I mentioned this earlier, is that people are not used to sitting under the teaching of Asian voices. People are still not used to being led by Asian uh, men and women. And this is, it's a startling reality because what I have seen from my perspective is this past year during COVID-19, during the skyrocketing time of anti-Asian racism, I have seen Asian women and uh, Asian American Christian women in particular, leading the charge in racial advocacy and reconciliation. Asian women are doing the work. And so my my encouragement is to follow us, to listen to us, to, to, to buy our books, uh, to, to, to be willing to receive the fuller blessing that comes uh, when when you are cognizant of all the voices at that at the table, and that includes uh, Asian American voices and Asian American women voices in particular. Amen to that, especially Asian American women who are having those challenges and battles even within their own communities, uh, and certainly in the larger society. And the but the voices and physical presence of women in the midst of this time of coming. Uh, coming to see and to accept and to be confronted by uh, this this horrific violence, women have just played such a critical role in this whole period of this this uh, the, the pandemic. COVID has been revelatory in so many ways, you know, revealing our inequities, our divisions, our violence, and one of the things it also is revealing is the role of women rising up in the midst of all of this. So thank you for your book and for your own voice in that. Um, as an Asian American woman and a, a scholar in residence and, and, and theologian in residence, and as a person of faith, I wonder uh, after this wonderful conversation, if Michelle, I could ask you to close us in a prayer uh, for the flourishing of the multicultural multiracial body of Christ? And how could that help be a moral compass for the multiracial democracy that this country is trying to and is yet to become? And, the, and that the nation needs really to save its soul. Could you pray us out with that kind of prayer for the soul of this nation? Father God, we come before you today and we pray as you have commanded us, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord God, we know your heart for a multicultural body of Christ. Help us to see it and pursue it. May you open our hearts and our eyes and our ears to taste and see your goodness manifested in all peoples. 
And may we be willing to give up our rights and our demands for equality in order to truly love our neighbors well. May we become open to trying new things and seeing the world in new ways. And may the world see you through our love for all peoples. So Lord God, we do pray for the flourishing of the multicultural, multiracial body of Christ. We pray for our own hearts and minds and bodies to be willing to change, uh, to, to embrace discomfort and new ways of doing things in, in order for that flourishing to, to, to take hold and manifest um, for the sake of your kingdom and for the sake of your gospel. So we pray this all in your name. Amen. Well, I must say that hearing the wisdom and the passion that we have all just listened to from an Asian American Christian woman gives me a real sense of hope today. So thank you, Michelle, for joining us. Thank you, Jim. It's an honor to, to chat with you today. To hear more from Michelle Reyes, follow her on Twitter at Dr. Michelle Reyes and buy her new book, Becoming All Things Wherever Books Are Sold. For more Soul of a Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, and follow me if you'd like on Twitter at Jim Wallace. Blessings for the soul of a nation. Thank you.